<laughs> As promised, continuing my uh, rough drafts, my outline of the exercise in the demon book. Alright, so chapter one is going to be Home of Record. We used to call our birthplace or where we grew up our home of record when, when I was in the Marine Corps. So I think that's a pretty decent chapter or title, but we could also call it Home Sweet Home or something like that. Well, there's no place like home. A few working models of a, of a title. So where I'm from, okay, so I was born and raised in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, a little town called Forked River. If uh, you ran somebody and they asked where you're from, you weren't familiar with New Jersey, you'd have to say Forked River, or I would say Tom's River, because people would remember Tom's River because they won the Little League World Series however many years ago. So that was a big deal. Tom's River's, uh, or that area, is also famous for its bays and beaches and fishing. It's part of the Jersey Shore. I like to say if you drove straight across it, like where, I, where I'm from, is all the way east. If you drove at the waist of New Jersey, if you look at the state, and consider where we live, where I live now, which is in eastern PA, if I get on the Blue Route 276... And I just keep going. Go ahead, lady. Go ahead, fuck face. Okay. If I keep going on 276 East, go over the bridge in New Jersey. And just keep going through the Pine Barrens, I'm going to wind up in Forked River. This is a place that is within or at least adjacent to the Pine Barrens Preserve, which is many, many acres. I talked about the Pine Barrens before preserved acres a long, long time ago so that we didn't develop them, fuck them over, destroy them. So the area consists of basically scrub pines, which is a bit of a stunted species of pine tree. A little smaller than, than you might expect out here in PA or other parts of the of the country, even the loblolly pine that we talk about in Delaware. That's a very tall pine tree. These scrub pines, <clears throat> they're maybe 40, 60 feet max. So they're pretty small. And there's scrub oaks. I think that they call them scrub because they're smaller, they're stunted. This is probably due to the sugar sand composition of the soil. So there are some fertile areas in New Jersey for sure. That's why they call it the Garden State, is its motto, but... You know, sugar sand is basically what you got. So not incredibly nutrient-rich. Anyway, enough about the geology of New Jersey. I always said that growing up, if you gotta be from New Jersey, which people judge in a terrible way, very critical way, from the, from the Jersey Turnpike or it's a, a position relative New York City and Philly. Jersey has been a dumping ground. It's got, you know, it's sandwiched between two of the 
largest cities on the East Coast. So, it's a fast-moving place, but where I came from growing up, it was dirt roads, okay? It was beautiful. It was pristine. I'm talking about these endless pine and cedar and oak forests and sugar sand trails and BMX bikes and dirt bikes and quads and sand pits. They mine a lot of the sand that you buy, let's say, at uh, any fill sand or sand you might get in bags for playground. That's all from New Jersey. All right. There's a large quantity of that there. So sand and stone gravel lots, uh, mining operations are can be seen throughout New Jersey. If you go on Google Earth, you probably find a lot of those quarries, you know. Sand has many uses. So just endless trails with sugar sand and uh, the most beautiful amber creeks that we would and we would frolic you know, as, a, as a young boy growing up there was no short number of places to go and recreate we'd go down the parks and playgrounds of course we would go to the lakes at, a, at three or four lakes in my town and so we we're always around these lakes fishing and boating and swimming and there were docks down the lakes and we'd go and swim down there, lifeguards, you know, on duty, and ice cream trucks pulling up, and it was an awesome place to grow up, you know, the school districts were good, there's some people who've been there, the families have been there, like there are out in PA here, some, not indigenous, indigenous were the Lenny, Lenny, the Lenny Lenape Indians, of course, but as far as settlers are concerned, and recent generations, there were folks who had been there for a couple hundred years or, or more, and common names, just like you find in any place, you know, and it was kind of like their territory, those were the Pineys, and of course, people would move, mostly from the cities, right, my parents moved from North Jersey, close to New York City, and, uh, and at some point, their ancestors came over at Fergan Ellis Island. Polish and Irish and German people come in, inhabit the area, get crowded out, see opportunity in the suburbs, and the Oberst moved to the bucolic, pristine Barnegat Pines, they called our area. And so we grew up friggin' hang, going in these friggin' woods, building forts, playing manhunt, playing tag, riding bikes, no helmets, you know bike store in our town, BMX supplies there, we'd get our get my first set pair of vans there, um, it was part of a BMX crew, we'd go and we'd create these ramps and berms and, you know, everybody's, most families, some of the families had uh, <clears throat> had some land, you know, half acre, something like that, a lot, where there was partly wooded and we would we got our shovels and dig ditches and on the corners you know driving through town here you couldn't put a ramp here you couldn't dig a ditch and, and make like a dirt ramp but on every corner there was a little little patch of woods and dirt we would go in these places and we would just freaking like I said build forts chase each other around shoot the shit I smoked my first cigarette in some of those woods 
kissed my first girl, saw a torn out piece of, uh, torn out pages or, or, or dilapidated Playboy or penthouse magazines in the, out in the woods and, man, we just had a fucking great time. We all had BB guns, we all had uh, dirt bikes, and we did a lot of cool things, of course, outside. Now, that's not very common, as common anymore. People, it's like a niche industry is being out there and appreciating nature, but that's why I find myself out there along these creeks and and, and parks and stuff, because those are really some of the only places left to go where you can do this sort of stuff. So when I think of my hometown, I think about the endless recreation outdoor in the woods, picking wild blueberries right from our backyard. You know what I mean? In the woods across the street, blueberries. It was like a Jumanji in the woods across the street from my house. We'd go in there and we'd stalk each other. The kids from the other block, they'd come in there and they infiltrate your fort and you know, chase you away. And we're always scared of... We're on like the alert, at least, about big kids. Big kids were those bigger kids, older kids, who might be inclined to bully or chase you away or take your whatever. And um, it was a different time. It was a, it was the, there's cinema, uh, cinematic portrayals of, of growing up um, and uh, living in the '80s as a young person. Of course, MTV, the original MTV. Um, Stand By Me, even though it was depicting the 50s, it was a sort of thing that everybody saw movies like that and wanted to emulate or could relate to, going on an adventure with your buddies, you know, doing something risky. Um, remember Kiefer Sutherland, Sutherland in that movie was one of the older kids, kind of a, a reckless kid, smoking cigarettes, drinking, you know, tearing ass around town in a, in a truck with a bunch of his buddies, you know, harassing people and making trouble, right? You're scared of people like that. You go on your adventure and maybe you knew a big brother or somebody else in the neighborhood who would stick up for you or it was, it was a very much a, um, we're trying to sort out our pecking order. It was very Lord of the Flies-esque, all right? So Lord of the Flies, The Outsiders, Rumblefish, um, Stand by Me, um, shitloads of comedies. HBO was big at the time, so you, maybe I got my first. Uh, I, I listened to Eddie Murphy Raw and Andrew Dice Clay and George Carlin, and saw Mike Tyson fights. We would rent them. The beginnings of pay per view. Everybody would get together and and split a. I don't know, $50 Mike Tyson fight. And dad would sit on the couch with a beer and kind of mimic the, the punches, like throw the punches with his shoulders and, his, you know, grimace and you know, hiss and you know, that sort of stuff. Watching the fights go down. And that's the sort of shit we did. You know, we'd get, we'd get down to the park. I had some really good friends growing up. My buddy Rocco, I've mentioned before, and his family. I was an honorary Minichino. I would say that I was, uh, by virtue of growing up in South Jersey, I'm kind of like a de facto Italian because 
you know, it was a lot of Italian culture, a lot of good restaurants, great pizza, uh, a lot of, you know, tongue twister names. So me and Rocco, my buddy Sean, my buddy Z, uh, would meet all these people in school, and the schools were good. I remember my teachers. I remember the fields. Uh, we were at recess. I remember getting on the bus and the sound of as the bus would shift through its gears, the sounds of the bus in the community coming to our bus stop and the the makeup of the bus stop where you'd have, again, kids of different ages going to different classes that were taught by different teachers and everybody compared notes and talked about what was going on in school and more importantly, what would happen after school. Uh, we would hang out around the neighborhood and immediately once we got home and did any homework or avoided doing homework, we'd run over to our friend's house and, you know, and have as much fun as we could. It was the time in the 80s of latchkey kids, which I've mentioned before, podcasting, where, you know, both parents worked, hopefully. You know, the economy was pretty good. They called it the Mercedes 80s. Some people did. Anyway, and my town had some opportunity. Uh, my, my parents were both employed by the energy sector. They worked for a nuclear, my mother worked for a nuclear plant doing various jobs and my father was a lineman for 35 years. So union jobs, good competitive pay, we had a pool in the backyard and a bi-level home and bought some 10 acres in the Catskills to uh, build a cabin and, and, and take refuge from the, the crowds at the Jersey Shore in the summertime. That was a big part of my life, spending time in the mountains, which was even more remote, more exposure to my five senses, just drinking in through my five senses, the mountain air and the babbling brooks and the little rocks and uh, trails and explored the mountains and had incredible times up in those mountains again, developing, working on, there was no cell phones, you know, so we would listen to the radio, maybe get some rock and roll music, and at night, maybe you'd read a book, or play a game, or shoot the shit, Um, growing up in the Jersey Shore, and this whole picture that I'm painting, it was a good life, I didn't know too much hardship, we would go visit our uh, my paternal grandparents up in North Jersey periodically. Had a lot of friends, a lot of people around the community that were awesome. There were some good people, a lot of great people in my community. There were some, some enemies or some people that we didn't get along with. We had the troll woman down the block. She would uh, walk a big husky, and her method was that the husky would drag, would not be on a leash directly, but would drag a chain hear the chain uh, dragging across the pavement and so you knew that she was out there walking which the dog was probably nice but my I had my family had a bunch of mastiffs and St. Bernards and a dog called a Fila Brasileiro and cats we had at one point we never had all these animals at the same time but at one point in time maybe had three dogs or four cats which I guess is quite a bit and we loved our animals. Um, and these dogs, even though they were big and scary, at a glance, they were actually wonderful creatures that 
they were just enriched our lives growing up. And I'll remember these dogs for the rest of my days. But when that husky started dragging the big chain down the road, my dogs would go fucking wild and they want to kill it. And I think they really hated that dog. So our dog, so we naturally hated that dog and their owner, even though she's probably a nice person. She lived in a little house right in the corner that looked like a, something out of Lord of, the, uh, Lord of the Rings, like a hobbit house. And she was short and very troll-like, almost looked like the, the leprechaun. The leprechaun! The scary leprechaun horror movies. So she was a nemesis. There was a woman that was down the, uh, a few blocks away with this asshole. This woman walking on the sidewalk with all her freaking ten layers on. She sees a, a cup on the on the sidewalk and she kicks it into the road. Scumbag. Don't you fucking pick it up. Nasty thing. So, uh, uh, so this woman a few blocks away, she would uh, she would come in your house. She she was such a like a home warmer. She would wanna. She was annoying and, and catty and all this shit. But she would like she'd open up your door. Not announce you like hello, it's me, and like announce her presence and then come in. And this is that um, that like Sebastian Maniscalco kind of like the Sebastian Maniscalco sequence. He's talking about company and how it was back in the day, how it was welcome. Well, company was welcome. You know, we had freaking Avon ladies showing up at our house. We had kids coming in and out, but it was not the, we were not the type of people that wanted people coming in and invading our privacy. You know what I mean? Something to be said for privacy, but other families were a little bit more liberal with that. I also had a nemesis in the Block family. Mrs. Block was a probably a six foot two woman, very large, and she had a guy who was like her husband, Mr. Block, was probably five foot tall, and they lived in this shitty little fucking house a few blocks away, and they're very dirty, and they had a bunch of dogs in their house, and I, I delivered papers to them, and when I had to go to the to the house to collect. She was very evil. She was not having it. She didn't want to give, you know, the $2 or whatever that I had to. She had to pay for the, um, for my delivery of the papers weekly and, and weekend-wise. At that, those days, you had to put in a little tiny manila envelope and stick it inside the door were the instructions. And it was always hell going to collect at her house, and she smelled, uh, I was talking in the past, that when you open up a friend's door, or even go trick-or-treating, or something like that, and come to somebody's door, and they open it for you, they had, familiar smells were like Italian food, hopefully, and then you got cigarettes, and beer, and, um, another big one was mothballs. I think people would commonly hold that thought. I gotta go into the office real quick. Check, check, check. Okay, continued. Chapter one continued. It's talking about 
the smells when you'd open somebody's house. This is relevant because this is our community, man. This is this is what was going on. I mentioned food. I mentioned dogs are worth mentioning. Cigarettes, mothballs were very common. And people would scare away critters, which there were a lot of in our community, using mothballs. Uh, raccoons, perhaps, you know, uh, get something under your foundation. Anyway, this is what was going on. There are local hangouts. We would go to a place called Devil's Ditch, right across from 7-Eleven. We'd go to 7-Eleven, get a big gulp. All right, get some uh, bazooka gums or some sort of candy. And we would hang out across that at Devil's Ditch where there was like this plateau around a, a big pit that was wooded. So you'd, you know, start at the top of this plateau that came right off the, the road. And you go down and around a berm and hop a jump. And, you know, this is a common place where people would go to fight. If there was a challenge, a gauntlet thrown down then uh, Devil's Ditch would be the place where it would go down. All right. Hey, meet me at Devil's Ditch at 3 p.m. after school. Shit like that. Um, so as I grew up and I navigated my way through school, elementary school and middle school and finally high school, I became a Lacey Township Lion. That was our, our high school mascot. And I participated in various sports. Okay, I did soccer when I was a kid. I did a lot of um, Kempo karate until I was about a brown belt second degree. And that was an interesting phenomenon. That's relevant because um, I would later do more martial arts and then, of course, join the Marine Corps where I would uh, hone my fighting skills. I remember a few of my first fights back on the block. And I got my ass kicked quite a few times, and I also dealt out some beatings. I, my stature started to grow in my uh, mid-teens. I put on like 50 pounds in a summer, and my appetite for life, for um, food, for adventure, it continued to grow. Had a tight-knit group of friends. You know, I found my people. I think that's important in, in life to find out what your crowd is. You know, you've got preppies and burnouts, we call them. Uh, and there were pretty distinct classes of people, you know. There was, of course, folks in the middle and in every, which, in every other category. But um, I don't know if I was, I guess I kind of, since heavy metal was big, I wasn't a burnout exactly, but I definitely did my share of listening to um, Metallica and Slayer and Megadeth and, and had a back patch on a um, jean jacket and ripped pants and bandanas around my... You know, the rock and roll culture was big with MTV being such a thing. And there was a program they played on, on MTV called Headbangers Ball. Most of my friends had guitars, electric or acoustic, or drum sets, and uh, there were quite a few bands in my town that came from the youth in the community. Um, at some school, at some point in my, in my life, in fact, early on, I remember that my scholastics were never incredibly strong. I was not identified by the uh, teacher you know, or administrative side of the schools as somebody who was going to be, you know, 
had a big future, like in academics. And that was the thing, even though my, my town was a working class town, there was a lot of uh, blue collar uh, folks that worked in various jobs, construction, masonry, um, some fishermen, uh, a lot of people. Uh, would still commute to the city, whether it be at Philadelphia or New York City, on various trains and stuff. And uh, I think the best employed probably did stuff like that. You know, would go into the city. A lot of people worked on trains that would uh, go north to south, taking people to and from the city. So anyway, I was my parents were blue collar. I was going to be blue collar. Um, uh, in high school, I wound up going to vocational school because I had not done well. And they were like, okay, we're going to figure out what's, what Aaron's going to do with his life. Let's get him in some sort of direction. So I went. I signed up for engine rebuilding. Now, there was construction, uh, carpentry, masonry, and I decided I wanted to get into mason, uh, engine rebuilding. And I didn't, I wasn't into that at all, you know. I learned a lot. It was an interesting experience. I passed. I was definitely, um, you know, I did well in that program, but I was in the, the little classroom, found myself in the classroom a lot, uh, reading muscle mags and health stuff. And, and then eventually, as everybody was trying to figure out what they were going to do with their life, because that was a, a real important thing. Like you had to, as a, as a young adult, you had to find what you were going to do. You know, something. You know, I had various jobs. I was a paper boy. I was a dishwasher. Um, I was, um, I worked as a well driller at one point. I did a bunch of landscaping stuff. But I needed to find my calling. I felt pressure to do so. And I found myself in some trouble, which I could talk about and have mentioned before. I'll give you some brief examples of that in a moment. But I identified with the military. You know, I liked you know, other movies that we had watched growing up in pop culture were Rambo and all the Arnold movies like The Terminator and Commando and all that stuff, Predator. So I wanted to be a tough guy. I felt a great deal of masculinity and a calling to be a an alpha male. I wanted to do that. I wanted to be big and strong. And so I started lifting weights and I was on the wrestling team, and I was doing karate, and I was drinking beer with my buddies in the woods, and just tinkering around with adulthood. Kissed my first girl, I don't know, probably 12 or something like that in a roller rink. I remember at one point we're at somebody's house, again, the latchkey kid thing. This one girl who was like the talk of the town, everybody wanted to, to go out, quote unquote, with her. Um, Will you go out with me, sort of thing. Do you like me? Yes or no? Do you like me? Yes or no? Will you go out with me? Um, so me and my buddy, we went over her house one point in time, and we took turns kissing her to like gauge who was the better kisser. And there was another girl too who was kind of like a comparative hag, and uh, we would kiss her too. But I mean, kissing, heavy petting in the movies, roller rinks, down at the park, at somebody's house—very, very common. And so that's where we explored, you know, relationships and sexuality and all that stuff. And I did pretty well. I lost my virginity to a girl who's a couple years older than me. I think I was 15. And I, we were all at a party drinking and 
and the girl was had a real bad reputation and she was kind of on the burnout side but she had it in for me and just basically made a move and it was quick and aggressive and ugly and huge regret thereafter because she was not somebody that I wanted my first time to be associated with but I also as a young man I wanted to uh to get over that hump quote unquote pun not intended I wanted to get past that so that I could say that I was no longer um, a virgin and that I had some experience and I built on that from there. Uh, in the weeks that followed, that girl wanted everything to do with me, be like boyfriend, girlfriend. I'm like, eh, no. Um, and then people knew about it and it was, it was just embarrassing. Anyway, this is what young people do, right? Everybody's got a story like that. Um, some point in my teens, uh, my 16, I believe I was 16 years old because I wasn't driving yet. I worked at an Italian restaurant called Signori's. I was a dishwasher and a prep cook and I was big and strong and Grateful Dead tie-dye t-shirt on and strutting around the kitchen. You know, I, my chef was Andy. He was a real nice guy, treated us well, fed us well, um, took care of us when he could. And uh, I met a girl in there who was a, a bus girl, and she was beautiful. We fell in love quickly. We were together for about three years throughout my high school. She was a year ahead of me, and we, I just loved her so much. And so much that when I finally went away to the Marine Corps, we, I asked her to be my wife. And then, of course, standard Marine Corps experience, military experiences that fell apart and... Um, you know, I got a Dear John letter less than a year into my, um, my time in service as I was on a, um, a naval vessel crossing the Mediterranean six month deployment. You know, that was a test certainly. And it ended and it ended ugly. And I was just heartbroken. Just heartbroken but it was important that I went through that so that I could uh, I could go on you know it's one of those unfortunate painful but necessary uh, rites of passage is your first heartbreak um, you know everything was rosy up until that point it was gonna be she and I together and forever and it was really I don't think anybody could have predicted the outcome, but obviously I'm glad it happened. I'm well, I love my current life, my wife, my kids, my family, my sphere. Some adventures that I had when I was a young boy, a little trouble that I got into. Let's just get into that real quick. Um, my buddy and I, my buddies and I conducted probably the most impressive prank phone call that has ever occurred. I'll tell you, try to keep this brief. My sister had a terrible, possessive, evil boyfriend. And he was a mm, couple years older than us, bigger, stronger. He was a bully. He was a burnout. He was really heading into, uh, you know, treading deep waters and, so when I was 14, 
15, you know, he had us drinking beer with him, smoking weed, blaring to the music, getting in trouble. Um, and my sister just loved this guy. Their relationship was something that was real, that really shook my family and tore it apart. Um, when I was a kid. So, um, but my parents, they would, uh, you know, they would go up to the mountains. So they go to our mountain house and they, you know, do whatever, relax up there, decompress from their work and their lives and all the providing they did for us. Uh, they would occasionally leave me in the care of my sister. And that was dumb because the boyfriend would come over and uh, somebody would buy his beer and we'd have a party and we'd jump off the roof into the swimming pool and all kinds of shit. So at one particular juncture, it's late at night. Now it's midnight, let's say. And we start doing prank calls and he decides he's going to prank. The boyfriend decides he's going to prank call a, um, an old flame. This is the type of guy he was, you know, he's calling old girlfriends. My sister's asleep. She's, you know, throwing in the towel for the night. And this guy starts calling old girlfriends and he says, Hey, let's do a prank. So he calls this old girlfriend, her mother answers. It's like midnight. So why the fuck would somebody be calling, you know, talk to a, you know, a teenage girl at midnight? I mean, there are very good reasons for that, but maybe it's not that uncommon, but I'd be pissed if I got a call that late on a landline. Right? So the woman answers and she says, Oh, hi. The kid's name was Chris. Hi, Chris. How are you? He's like, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. My friend's not doing so well. His name is Lemmy. Lemmy Killmister. Well, Lemmy Killmister is the band leader, now deceased from the, um, what the fuck's his name? Motorhead. So, big, tall British guy, warts on his face, long hair, mustache, just a, a very um, iconic metal metalhead. So apparently this woman doesn't know who Lemmy Kilmister is. Oh, Lemmy, really? Oh, what's going? What's going on with your friend? Oh, he's he's got a bad home situation. His dad beats him, and he's always drunk. And his sister's home right now, and we're worried about her. And we get, they got into a big fight, and so the woman basically reveals she goes, "Listen, I'm a uh, so." She's like, I'm a, I'm a, a social worker. Can I talk to your friend? I can help him out of this situation. So then my other buddy gets on the phone. He's the social worker. He's on the other line upstairs in my house. Yeah, my name's Lemmy. Oh, yeah, my dad's beating the shit out of me. My sister's at home. I'm worried about what he might do. My dad's drunk again. So we're spinning this yarn, and it's going on, and they hang up, and they, they call back, and they hang up, and they call back, and this woman is working this like a case, like a social worker, uh, bound and determined to make a difference. Right. And so this goes on for a long time. It's early in the morning. And the woman says, listen, I need you to let me, I need you to meet me. Can you meet me somewhere? I'm going to take you out of this situation. So he's like, uh, I live by this lake, you know, the third lake. So, it's decided that we are going to meet meet this woman. Somebody's going to meet this woman at the lake at like two in the morning, three in the morning, and 
she's going to help Lemmy escape this terrible life. So, that person is me. I'm going to be the decoy. I'm going to be Lemmy. See if this woman really comes. So, we've been drinking all night. We're from 14 years old. They put me on a lifeguard chair. We walk down the lake. They put me on a lifeguard chair. And I'm sitting out there in the dark. And maybe the light is, maybe it's even, the dawn is starting to crack. And I'm like sobering up. I'm like, man, this is crazy. I'm going to go to fucking juvenile detention center. This is ridiculous. You know, I'm going to get out of here. I was just about to leave. And a little car, remember it was a Dodge Omni, pulls into the sandy lot across from um, the lake. And now I'm looking out onto the lake, the chain link fence about 20 feet behind me, sandy beach, pristine lake, a little fog rolls in. Here's this little Dodge Omni. Two women jump out with clipboards, right? And I'm Lemmy. So, woman comes over the fence and says, excuse me, Lemmy. I ignore her. For like a minute, I ignore her, and I finally turn around and say, Miss, uh, I'm sorry, I'm uh, I'm not Lemmy. Are you looking for somebody? She's like, oh, Lemmy, uh, yeah, this good boy called Lemmy. And she's like, certain it was me, you know. And I try to convince her, and I, tell, I said, listen, Miss, I had a fight last night with my girlfriend. Yeah, I'm 14. I had a fight with my girlfriend last night, and we broke up, and I'm just really sad, but... Other than that, I'm okay. My name is not Lemmy. I've heard of the guy. I can try to get in contact with him. You in contact with him if you want. So, um, she says, oh, okay. Okay, Lemmy. Okay, uh, if, if you really, you heard of him, right? You, you can, you give him my card. I said, yes, I certainly will give him your card. I, see, I might see him in school tomorrow. And she turns around and starts walking across the road and to her car. And here comes the dickhead, evil boyfriend, Chris, with my buddy, 14-year-old Sean, riding double on a minibike. You know what they sound like, right? Here they come. It's like freaking 5 o'clock in the morning. There's barely, the sun's barely coming up. And they blow a stop sign. There's no traffic out there. They blow a stop sign. Um right in front of where we're at and they bounce around a little bit and almost lose control of the mini bike. And then they said, Hey Lemmy, what's the matter? Your dad been beating you again? And they laugh their ass off and they tear away. And I'm sitting there, my head in my hands, and I just freaking flipped out and I ran. And I don't know what happened after that. I know I went home and I was pissed. And I'm like, you guys are going to get me fucking arrested. This is crazy. What if these people know? This is, of course, behind, before the time of cameras and phone tracking and all that. This was a um, simpler time. So I was pissed at them. And, you know, we laughed. And eventually I got over it. We laughed and carried on and couldn't believe the, the, the prank that we had just pulled. Absolutely crazy. And so that is the story of Lemmy. That is the kind of trouble. That's what I was up to in the darkest moments of my uh, my youth. And uh, there were never any repercussions for that. Nobody ever, we never got in trouble. Um, 
I'm not proud of that, but it was something that happened. And if my kids ever did that, I'd kill them, right? But this was part of what I was up to. On another occasion, I was down in uh, at the beach, and it was a big surf day. And again, the boyfriend, my sister, uh, sister and her boyfriend drove us down there, and we were going to go boogie boarding, but it was like around the time of a post-hurricane. So big swells out there, big dangerous swells. But that's when surfers and bodyboarders like to get out there and work and play, rather. So we couldn't get through the shore break. Our little skinny arms, bodies, we couldn't get out there. So we needed a, a little bit of an edge. Uh, we went we went to the Surf City Five and Dime, which still exists today. And we got these assisting. We located these, these uh, paddle assisters, which were like neoprene gloves that leave an appearance like you are a frog, some sort of amphibian with webbed feet, so you can paddle faster. We located them in a the little store, a little rundown place with, you know, four or five aisles of beachy stuff. And we decided we we're going to steal them, but they were held together with these plastic uh, security tags. And the, at the counter, they would have to disconnect these things. And then it wouldn't beep when you went out the door. So we tried to disconnect those. And shit, what are we going to do? We got to get rid of... We had, we had stolen plenty of times before, whether it was tobacco or condoms or gum or whatever the fuck. We'd done all that shit. So... Now I'm stepping on these things. And I decide I'm going to rip them a little bit. I'll rip the tag out, stepped on one glove on the ground, picked the other one up, hoisted, ripped them, ruined them, but they were still might work. So we stuffed them down our pants and walked out of the five and dime. Beeper goes off, manager comes, grabs us by the arm, cops are there soon after, and we go to jail, man. We're kept in a holding cell, our parents come pick us up, and... The ride home, my parents' parents had to leave work. Again, the whole latchkey thing. That's how a lot of this these sort of trouble could be found. There was no supervision, right? So my sister and her boyfriend, they see us get arrested. They take off. My parents come pick us up. My mother does. She's pissed. She's making threats. You're never going to spend hang out with your buddy John again. So forget it. And you're grounded forever. My dad smacks me in the side of the head. Jostles me. Temporary inca temporarily incapacitates me. Said I, you just ran our name through the through the dirt, and that hurt more than the actual blow. The next day or the next week, I talked to my mother and said, "Listen, ma, me and John are really good friends, so I would really like to hang out with him. You know, we're on the same wrestling team, we're in school, every class together. You know, we fucked up and we're we're sorry about it, and we're obviously going to pay." And uh, she said, okay, you know, you can hang out with John. Tomorrow I'm going to pick John up, talk to his mom. I'm going to pick him, you got him up at, uh, we're going to pick him up at 9 a.m. And she took us, picked us up, picked him up, loaded in the car, went down to uh, the recruiting station in Matahawka, New Jersey, where we met Marine Corps recruiters. And they told us about their stories. You know, they're just back from Iraq and they looked sharp, and they were muscular and in shape and proud, chest out, head up, 
you know, squared away in every sense of the phrase. And we knew that we were on the wrong track and we needed some kind of focus for our energy, for our testosterone, uh, some kind of adventure, some a challenge, you know, something to, to focus us. And so we bought in hook, line, and sinker. We atoned for the uh, shoplifting by doing community service where I raked uh, animal dung at the um, popcorn zoo in Bamber Lake, New Jersey. Pretty cool place. And uh, loaded carcasses into dumpsters and stuff like that, roadkill, and uh, so on and so forth. Uh, picked up cigarette butts alongside the road with a crew of, of adolescent uh, juvenile um, troublemakers. And I, it was kind of like prison because you could see, you know, while you're walking alongside the road that these people were plotting to do whatever, whatever, go, go to the next party, you know, drink their next beer, smoke their next blunt or, you know, some of them were up to, to no good big time, but we learned our lesson and we decided to change our, our path. And like I said, we were, my buddy John and I were determined that we were going to join the Marine Corps. And so we started going to these, we'd go to the delayed entry program meetings. They had meetings monthly. And when we got our, our, um, when we go to these meetings, we'd go to the, you know, places that above the marshals, there's a recruiting, uh, a couple of recruiting rooms at the end of the hallway. And they had a pull up bar in the, in the door and they had, pictures of all the Marines that were shipping out to Paris Island and, and, and you know, all kinds of plaques with knives on them, the K-bar knife and all that shit. And these guys were tough and interesting. And we would go there when we got our license, we would go there and hang out with them at every freaking opportunity, you know? And when the door was locked because they were out doing something that had to do with recruiting, we were disappointed. We'd go away for an hour or two and come back and hang out with them. And uh, we probably had a half dozen or a dozen of our fellow um, classmates join the Marine Corps or join the military in some capacity because a lot of us were looking for the same things. So this is my story of growing up. The good, the bad, the lessons learned. And I often wonder, I reflect upon my hometown and who I was then, how it all started, the experiences along the way, and how I can use those memories to how they got me to this current place in life and how I've used them as learning points, stepping stones, um, warning signs, um, leverage to build my current life. I think that it's important to that everybody think about their youth and try to recollect some of the old friends in the old neighborhood. And so my immediate action for chapter one would be for people to go home, to visit their hometown, to walk down their community streets, to visit that old park or playground, to drive by, you know, their old house and school and neighborhood and see how things changed and see how things are the same. You know, 
one of the things that I talked to my wife about yesterday is that, you know, she went to New Jersey to, um, for a cheer event yesterday. And as she went, I took her by the Jackson outlets in Jackson, New Jersey, which is about half hour from where she grew up. And when she went there, it was like, like that. It was like, wow, the outlets, I haven't been here in 15 years, but and there was a lot that had changed, but the same two stores on the had the end locations in the outlets. It was like Talbot's and The Gap or something like that. You know, or that street sign that's the same, or that tree that still stands, or that little house. You know, isn't that interesting? So walk down your streets, reconnect with your youth, and consider where you are now. How did these things influence you, your path, you know? Also, reconnect with an old friend, you know? Cut loose some, anyone who's an anchor, who you're still in contact with throughout, um, from back in the day, that is an anchor today. And, uh, you know, perpetuates bad memories or creates problems or, you know what I'm saying? So make or break a relationship from back in the day. Maybe that, that might even mean letting, cutting loose a family member, you know, that's been part of dysfunction for you. So that's our first chapter is immediate action or pra- practical application or an enabling learning objective. How do we use this information? Break. So... That is almost an hour of uh, where I'm from, who I am. I'm sure I left some things out, but I think I also added some details where I, that I hadn't previously considered. Obviously, this needs to be pared down. If I was writing it, I could better um, you know, do that, edit it down. But I envision maybe in the future listening to this and writing simultaneously. An outline, then details, paragraphs, chapters, and finally the um, immediate action for you. So, got a lot of good content. Maybe I'll hand it to that uh, ghostwriter, edit it down. Love and respect. Chapter one complete.